So good evening, everybody. Before I share a talk with you, I was reminded that it might be a good idea to just say a few words about who I am. Uh, and some of you might not remember my name. My name is Erin Treat, and I'm part of the current group of teacher trainees to, um, that are being trained to teach here at Spirit Rock and at IMS. Many of my fellow trainees are sitting here in the hall with us tonight. And I live in southwestern Colorado. I live in Durango, Colorado, and I'm part of a teaching council there at a thriving, wonderful Dharma Center. And I've been sharing the Dharma and teaching since 2005. So I am um, really happy to be here. A little bit nervous, as you can hear in my voice. It's really rich to come into a retreat that is two weeks or six weeks already unfolding. I have felt so nourished just by being in this space with you with so much collective mindfulness and sincerity and devotion to the practice. It's been really quite moving for me, quite touching for me as I was working on my talk this afternoon in one of the interview rooms, just watching many of you walking during the walking period and the kind of care that you're bringing to the moments of your life and the kind of smoothness and sweetness that's developing here. It's really been a privilege and an honor to come in and be with you in this way. So I hope that these words will be of benefit to you in your continued practice. I was asked to speak tonight about equanimity as a Brahma-vihara. And I'd like to begin with a poem called In the World by Bridget Lowry. In the strange early morning half-light we sit. In the cloudiness of our questioning we sit. In our madness and our clarity we sit. In the midst of too much to do, we sit. In the warm arms of our shared sorrow, we sit. In community and in loneliness, we sit. In sweet exhaustion, we sit. In the blazing energy of being alive, we sit. Here with the singing crickets. Here with each electric bird song. Here with the rippling of breezes and the dry grasses here with the cobwebs and the clouds and the dusty road upon us, us in the sound and the sound in us, us in the world and the world in us. So maybe you can relate in your experience here the many moments that we sit, and we don't just sit, we sit and we walk and we eat, and we go to sleep, all these moments of our lives. The Pali word for equanimity, upeka, we've talked about it a few of the afternoon Brahmavihara sittings. And upeka means most literally to look upon or to look over. So it implies a a larger view than how we may hold 
ourselves to be or the world to be from our usual personality view. Upeka is like a, if you climb up on a mountain and you get to see the lay of the land and you have a larger perspective about where you are within the landscape. If we consider what this building might look like to the birds flying overhead, what a particular passing mind state would be from the view of the birds flying overhead or the planes that go even higher than the birds. Uh, This practice enlarges our view over and over again. When Gil Fransdahl writes about Upeka, I like the Pali word that he uses to describe this quality. Tatra majatata. It's kind of a fun word to say, actually. Tatra majatata. And it's made up of, of different Pali words. Tatra meaning there, or all these things. And maja means middle. And tata means to stand or to pose. So when we put these, these different compounds together, it means to stand in the middle of all of this, to stand in the middle of all this. And that's very much the felt sense of equanimity, to stand in the middle of all of this. If you do yoga and you know tree pose, just to feel how it is for the body to be in stability, standing in the middle of all of this. So it's not despite all of this, it's not separate from all of this, but it's actually right here in the middle of all of this. Just like Bridget Laurie says, us in the world and the world in us. In the suttas, equanimity is spoken about. Sometimes there will be just a passage and then, and then the words are said and equanimity takes its stance. And I, I love that. And equanimity takes its stance. To me, there's a dignity there, a nobility, an integrity, and a feeling of groundedness, stability, also spaciousness, when we take our stance, when equanimity takes her stance. So I can talk about equanimity and describe it to you, describe what it is, but... The way that you know this is, is, is so much through your own experience here. As I said, the, the momentum of your practice is palpable to so many of us, and equanimity is part of that field. When we turn toward what's happening with a moment of mindful awareness, right there is the presence of equanimity. A moment of mindful awareness, a moment of kind-hearted awareness is able to know what's happening just as it is, without reactivity, without leaning away or moving toward. Awareness is like that. Awareness just knows. It just mirrors back. It's always fresh. It's untroubled and it is unperturbed by what happened just before. So as we become more familiar with this dimension of our experience as human beings, with this mysterious and wonderful experience of awareness, we naturally come to know more and more directly the flavor of the equanimous mind and heart. When Mary talked last night about 
knowledge and destruction of the cankers. A mind without defilement, a mind without cankers. One expression of this kind of mind and heart is equanimous, non-reactive, just here, balanced, meeting what arises with a kind of openness. And so equanimity, we may consider it a wisdom quality, but it's absolutely a wisdom quality that comes from the heart. In the same way that nibbana is a kind of extinguishing, a coolness, equanimity is a, is a cooler flavor. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. And as so many of you know, it's really a, a, a high pedigree in the Buddhist teachings. It's, it's part of so many of the lists. The Buddha was such a great teacher in that he put together so many lists for us to memorize or forget, to try to understand and um, practice different aspects of liberation, of these liberating teachings. And so it's the last of the ten perfections, the last of the paramis. Equanimity is the last of the factors of enlightenment, the last of the Brahma-viharas. And I think there's a good reason that it's last in these lists. It's a, it's a mature kind of quality. We don't usually start with equanimity. Equanimity is something that develops and grows and ripens as our understanding also matures. So I'll speak about equanimity as a Brahma-vihara, but I also want to speak about it as a factor of enlightenment. And I came across this image yesterday. It's, it's, a, it's a good image, thanks to John Travis, for the factors of enlightenment, or the bhajangas, which are the factors of mind that when they are in balance, they, they make our minds be a fertile soil for insight to emerge. So a lot of what you're doing with your teachers, as you know, is just fine-tuning the factors of awakening that are already present in your own mind. Mindfulness is like um, the middle one. Mindfulness balances everything else. And I think we've used the image in here of a seesaw. This middle path is a dance that is constantly finding its balance. It's never really static. It's a dynamic play. And if you imagine a seesaw, a teeter-totter, with mindfulness being at the fulcrum, resting on a solid base of sampajanya, of clear comprehension. And there are the calming factors and the arousing factors. The arousing factors being investigation and energy and joy. These are present for each of you today. You've looked at your experience and there's been energy to take a look. And some degree of joy or interest just in being here and being part of the Dhamma unfolding. And then the tranquilizing factors, tranquility, and concentration and equanimity. And John had an interesting way of holding these factors. I hadn't heard this before, but I like it. That with mindfulness in the middle, that each of the three factors, the arising and calming factors, can be considered to be a factor of body, mind, and heart. If we consider investigation a quality of the mind and energy a quality of the body, and joy, a quality of the heart. On the other end, we might consider tranquility, a quality of the body, and concentration, a quality of the mind, and equanimity, a quality of the heart. So that the 
calming and arousing factors are stabilized on both sides in our hearts and our bodies and our minds. And so with this way of understanding the factors of enlightenment, we might consider equanimity really as a heart quality. I was reflecting on the fact that the vernal equinox happened yesterday. So today is technically the first day of what we commonly think of as being spring. And I got online and was just playing around with the words. When you prepare a talk, you kind of look at all different things, and I'm always interested in what words mean. And was just looking at equanimity and equinox. And, you know, with the equinox, it's, it's the day when there's the closest to being the same amount of light and dark. So today there was 12 hours and uh, 13 minutes of light, and yesterday 12 hours and 10 minutes, and tomorrow there will be 12 hours and 15 minutes. And it just strikes me that even here at the equinox, when it's you know, close to being part light, part dark, it's always changing. It's always in motion. It's always dynamic. And that this is really the nature of our lives. And that the kind of balance that is the quality of equanimity, it's not a static state. We don't just arrive there and stay there. We're constantly finding our balance. Even sitting here, there are muscles and bones that are stabilizing to keep you balanced in the sitting posture. Heather shared in her talk about samadhi, um, some stories about what she'd seen on YouTube, I think it was, with a Danish horse trainer. And I've also been watching not, not different videos on YouTube, but just the same one for about a month and a half now, and it's called The Path of the Horse. And it's a really amazing documentary. I've had the good fortune to spend a lot of time around horses in my life. I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, like the movie, and my dad... Um, was a veterinarian, and so he was mostly a small animal veterinarian, but he also worked on large animals, and I would go out um, with him on calls a lot growing up, so spent a lot of time uh, around horses and with him helping horses, and later on did quite a bit of riding, and I think that the reason I loved to spend time with these amazing creatures was because of what happened in my relationship with them. The field of relationship with a horse was actually the teacher, and it was something that I was in long before meditation, but it was really a a dhamma for me. And so in this documentary, it's the story of a woman who was a horse trainer, and she said that she felt like she could teach students how to control the horses, how to control the animals, but that she was missing the closeness she felt that she once shared with these beings, and she sold her ranch, and bought a bunch of plane tickets to go study with different horse trainers around the country and around the world. It's not unlike what we, what we do when we come to retreat. We, we leave our lives, our everyday lives behind to come find a new way, a new way to be more intimate with our deepest experience. And a real theme that emerged from her journey was just the importance of going to be with these creatures and saying, 
that I'm here to be with you. That's simple. Just I'm here to be with you. And then when we sit with these, with these horses, they, they feel this message of how it is to be present without agenda. I'm here to be with you. And this is not unlike how it is when we come to our practice, just to be here to be with you, mind. <laughs> whether, whether it's a crazy moment, an a angry moment, a calm moment, a peaceful moment, just here to be with you as you are. And she went to a, a trainer called, named Mark Gratchett. This man um, lives in Colorado. And he talked about his work with horses, and he says that, that his training is to train the horses in softness. That a lot of training trains horses to be light so that they can look good on their feet and do all these fancy tricks. And he says that lightness you can achieve through training. It's on the outside and that with lightness, you can get a lot of things done. He says that horses with lightness look good until they get into a new situation. He says lightness is available when things are going well, but with softness, it's available all of the time. He says that through training, we can take out the softness and spend the rest of our lives trying to put it back in. Can you relate to that, coming to Dhamma practice, how our, our early lives sometimes can, can take us further and further outside of our hearts, outside of our capacity to feel and sense deeply. And when we turn back toward the moments of our life in this way, it does recover an innate kind of softness. He says to work with horses, we have to train the softness in ourselves and in the horses. And this is very much like the quality of equanimity. Equanimity is not rigid. It's cool, but it's not hard. Softness is what allows palm trees to not be uprooted when there's a hurricane. If you ever see pictures after a hurricane and the hardwood trees crack, they break because they don't have a lot of flexibility. But palm trees can bend and sway and move with the currents that come through. So we need the softness to relax our bellies and let go of the tension that keeps us um, armored, really, against a deeper experience of our hearts and of our lives. So as a Brahma-vihara, equanimity... Is, is typically taught last, and it's been wonderful on this retreat that that's been mixed up some. I think it could be taught first. I've often thought it would be great to teach equanimity first because it's a container that holds all of the other Brahma-viharas. Equanimity practice is a real purifying practice when we use it as a Brahma-vihara. You might be sitting with a lot of equanimity and stability in your practice, and when you turn toward really engaging it as a Brahma-vihara practice, really turning toward things are as they are, I can care for you, but I can't control your happiness. Beings are the owners of their own actions, it tends to draw out 
all of the conditioning we have that's not so equanimous. So it's a, it's a wonderfully purifying practice in this way. An equanimity practice as a Brahma Vihara, it teaches us to enter our lives in a particular way, to really enter and make contact with more of our experience. And we need this in our lives. We need to know how to be at home in the midst of all the ups and downs that life brings our way. We, we, the Buddha spoke about the vicissitudes, the worldly winds, and many of you have heard them many, many times. And I, I'm not so interested in them as an abstraction. Oh, you know, the worldly winds, but they're very real in our own lives that we all know how it feels to have pleasure and how it feels to have pain. And we know praise and blame and gain and loss and fame and disrepute. And it's a lot to live in this world when our hearts tend to leap at the first of these and to feel sorrow at the second of these. So much of what brings us to practice in the first place is to find a refuge, to find a way to live in this world with its heavenly aspects and its hell realms as well, where there's love and poetry and beauty and there are tsunamis and terrorists and really awful things that happen. And so the the great promise of our practice is to find a kind of refuge that's available to us as the conditions of our lives are um, bringing us the next wave. When John talked about equanimity practice being learning to surf the waves, we know that the waves aren't going to stop coming. And so all we can do is turn toward refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha and realize this through our own understanding. I love the the phrase that Gil used yesterday, things are as they have come to be, and now let's see. The and now let's see it's a little bit of, huh, okay. Things are as they have come to be, and who knows what's coming next? A quality of interest and curiosity and freshness. So equanimity pervades all the Brahma-viharas, and the Brahma-viharas pervade equanimity. In, in metta practice, which I heard you spent the first couple of weeks doing and which we practice this afternoon, this beautiful wish, this beautiful well-wishing that we have toward beings and toward ourselves Cognitively, we can know how it is. We can know cognitively, oh, you know, I can wish this being well, and I don't really know what's going to happen in their lives. But it's so easy to slip into wishing a being well and really wanting to kind of manipulate and maneuver and control that. It's, it's, um, it's so natural for metta to lean into this kind of attachment. And equanimity is really what allows metta to be as boundless as it is. This larger understanding that 
things couldn't be unfolding differently, if things could be otherwise, they would be other, otherwise, is some of what allows us to really wish well without holding back. I have a dear friend who gave birth to her son on um, December 19th, and her son wasn't due until the very end of February. He was a really, really early baby. And she actually was home in Durango, and she went into labor, and it was really early, and she got on a medical jet, and they rushed her to Denver, which is about eight hours away if you're driving, and she had her baby within 10 minutes of arriving on the ground in Denver. And they spent quite some time in the neonatal infant care, well, infant, but intensive care unit up in Denver. She said that there were probably 60 or 70 little tiny, tiny preemie babies that were being cared for along with her son. And I was so happy when she came back to Durango and I got to come back and, um, and, and go see her and hold her little boy. And I was with them just before I came out here last week. And I went over to her house and I was holding her, her beautiful son, Peter, who's so small and who has this feistiness about him. It's clear uh, that he is a fighter. And I was holding him just so overcome with love and care and metta for this, this precious being. I love his mother and his father and was so, so happy to meet him. And as I was holding him, just feeling this metta flowing, it became clear to me as I looked at the little oxygen, the tiny little oxygen tube that was in his nose and hooked up to the oxygen tank, just what a journey he'd already been on in these weeks of his life. And I, I just had to remember that that I honor his journey because he's already been on such a journey. He's lived through so much, so much in these short weeks of his life and that I and so many others can wish him well and his body is going to do what it's going to do. We will do everything we can do to care for him and see to his development and he's a creature in this world and his nervous system is developing as best as it can his immune system and his lungs are developing as best they can and conditions are such this arises. So I actually find that when I let go in this way, I'm able to be with little Peter in a fuller kind of a way. So metta needs equanimity to be wise and equanimity needs metta to be warm, to be engaged. Compassion. We haven't done so much compassion practice yet on this retreat. I guess those of you who are here in February probably have done more formal compassion practice on this retreat. But compassion and equanimity also deeply go hand in hand. Compassion is the quivering of the heart when it encounters suffering and if there were no equanimity, I think we would drown in suffering. It would always be overwhelming. It would always be too much. It would be all that we could see. And so equanimity is some of what allows us to touch suffering in a way that is not separate, in a way that's really 
so much more direct and in a way that allows us to stay in balance. I was doing equanimity practice last week for a person I really love who's doing really, really destructive behavior to herself right now. It's behavior that I've tried and tried to help with, and it's clear that there's nothing I can do that's going to make her make other choices. And I wish so much that I could do something to make her make other choices. And as I was sitting with it, I saw how challenged I was to stay with the experience of things are as they are. That I really can wish her well, but that her happiness isn't up to me. It hurt to, to feel that. It was painful to see that. And I could see this way that I could um, go into a kind of compassion that was actually based on some kind of separation and fixing some kind of separation versus actually just sitting and being with both my own pain around her choices and the pain just that she's in to be making these choices. So that's something you can, you can check. Are you willing to linger with things are as they are? Are you willing to hang out with offering your care and knowing that what's next isn't directly up to you? Are you willing to hang out there and to just notice what that touches, what that brings forth? Sometimes we can rush compassion a little bit and equanimity helps it not to to be rushed but to really... Um, have a greater connection that can come through. Many, many great leaders have a, a, a kind of understanding of, a kind of not understanding really, but embodiment of compassion and equanimity that can be quite powerful to many people. When compassion has solid equanimity within it, there's a certain kind of perseverance and determination and fearlessness to the expression of compassion. One person who really represents this for me is Aung San Suu Kyi, the Burmese politician. A picture of her is down in the gratitude hut down the hill. And just looking at her, you know, she has a, a real presence about her. I think part of why she's been such a inspiration to not just Burmese people, but people all around the world is not just her incredible devotion to acting on behalf of the Burmese people, but it's also her presence. You know, there's a way that she is acting out of great compassion, but her embodiment is deeply rooted, deeply balanced, so stable, so grounded. If she didn't have equanimity, she probably would have left the country a long time ago. She probably wouldn't have held the flame to be the source of inspiration that she's been for these people, having spent more than 15 years under house arrest, choosing not to leave the country when her husband, her beloved husband, was dying of cancer because she knew she couldn't get back in. 
And, and in those years under house arrest, she had no phone, no mail. You know, it was incredibly isolating, but she had the great spiritual strength to stay the course, and she had the great overview, has the great overview of equanimity that allows this kind of compassion to really uh, have staying power. So it's not just nice, nicey-nice, but that there's really legs underneath it. So equanimity gives a courage and a fearlessness to compassion. And mudita, appreciative joy. I won't say too much about this because we haven't practiced it so much yet on this retreat. But appreciative joy, the quality of joy in general, keeps equanimity from getting too serious, from getting too stern. It keeps it warm. Nyanaponika Thera says that it's the divine smile on the face of the enlightened one, the smile that persists in spite of his deep knowledge of the world's suffering, a smile that gives solace and hope, fearlessness and confidence. Wide open are the doors to deliverance. It thus speaks. You know, when you see the Buddha Rupas, the Buddha's not grimacing. There's just a slight smile that's there and there's a way that when we look upon all of the conditions of our lives when we look upon the lawfulness um, it's good to be grounded but the quality of heaviness and sternness doesn't help so much so equanimity really pervades the Brahma Viharas and the Brahma Viharas pervade equanimity Sometimes we can focus so much on trying to develop the Brahma-viharas in ourselves. And I, I think it's easy to forget that, we, that, that really we might think of the Brahma-viharas as forces of nature, forces of nature that are made manifest through ourselves and through our experience. And that nature herself may mirror to us these qualities. I live right on the Animus River in Durango. And so I spend a lot of time in my practice. I'll meditate on on my porch by the river flowing by. And I was practicing some time ago and just opened my eyes to what was before me. And it was as if the presence of the Brahma Viharas was just completely enveloping me. I felt that the sun coming down on my face was, it was like a warmth of mudita, a warmth of metta. And sitting with the mountains and the sky It was as if the stability and spaciousness of equanimity was all around me and the river flowing. It's like the the movement of life toward life, the movement of the heart, the movement of compassion and metta. And so sometimes in knowing the Brahma Viharas, you can just open your eyes and sense yourself as part of this natural world and you might call upon them to come into your heart. Mountains where I live, mountains are a big part of my life. 
Those of you who have been through southwest Colorado know that it's the, the San Juan mountain range. So many incredible 14,000-foot peaks. And there's a reason I was drawn to that land to move there in my early 20s because I would go to the mountains and I would go to the deep canyons of the desert because I, I felt so held there. You know, being in the presence of these great mountains reminded me and gave me perspective uh, about what in my life seemed so enormous at 21, seemed like I was never going to find my way. Going to be at the base of the mountains and, and rest in the canyons reminded me that it, that it was going to be okay, <laughs> reminded me that it wasn't such a big deal. And mountains have a... Um, to me, they represent equanimity in terms of just the the stability and groundedness of their presence, but also the the impartiality of a mountain. When you when you think of a great mountain, great mountains are home to so many things. These hills here are homes to so many creatures. A mountain receives rain and hail and wind and sunshine and storms. A mountain receives hikers and maybe skiers and flowers and streams and all sorts of four-legged creatures and birds and trees. And there's a way that mountains receive all of these different forms of life, all of these different conditions without preference, really, without clinging, without aversion. A mountain just stands strong and grounded impartial, but not disconnected. Mountains exist because of the myriad of constantly changing activity that make them up. And so when, when life feels, or when your practice feels like it's all over the place, you can, you can call upon the strength and stability of a mountain. And that, that can offer the, the feeling of this great quality of equanimity. Thich Nhat Hanh says this about equanimity. True love does not just choose one person. When true love is there, you shine like a lamp. You don't just shine on one person in the room. The light you emit is for everyone in the room. If you really have love in you, everyone around you will benefit, not only humans, but animals, plants, and minerals. Love, true love is that. True love is equanimity. Those are wise words from the great teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. True love is equanimity. And he's speaking to the quality of impartiality that is part of equanimity. When, when we do the Brahma Vihara practice in a classical way and go through the categories of beings, self and benefactor and dear friend, and neutral person and difficult person. A heart that is truly equanimous can offer these well wishes toward all beings without preference. And part of why the equanimity practice is so valuable is to just pull out where are we more comfortable, where are we less comfortable, what views are at work here. So, 
each of the Brahma Viharas have a far enemy and a near enemy. The far enemy of equanimity is pretty straightforward. It's a mind that's not balanced, a mind that's all over the place, being buffeted around. And the near enemy of equanimity is something that, that um, for me, I've had to really watch for as my practice develops and deepens, a sense of indifference or apathy. And this is different from dispassion or disenchantment. It's not the same thing. Dispassion or disenchantment has within it the flavor of non-clinging, the flavor of liberation. But indifference has within it the flavor of shutting down or separating out. And it's something that um, is important to keep on the radar, not just when we're brand new to practice, but as our practice deepens and we know more and more states of calm or sukha or equanimity with regard to these arisings, sometimes there can be a real preference at work for these beautiful meditative states. Or we can be walking around with a lot of spaciousness, but not really be making contact with what's happening in our momentary experience. So it's a place to really uh, just be wakeful if you have some idea that you're supposed to be equanimous and not bothered by anything. True equanimity can be with anything that's arising. True equanimity, um, one expression of it can be a mind that's just calm and still, but it can also be the way that deep awareness can meet real intensity of emotion. The freedom is equanimity with regard to the arisings. I came across this quote in a talk some time ago, and it, it just says it so beautifully. This is by an East Indian woman named Devi. And she was speaking to, a student was asking her about having trouble letting go. And she said, it's normal. Everybody wants to let go. She says, but how do you let go if you don't hold things, if you don't touch things in full consciousness, in full awareness with a totally open heart? The first experience is of touch, a profound contact between things with the universe without mental commotion. Everything begins there. Touching, opening, accepting the universe deeply. If you let go before touching deeply, you can bring on mental turmoil. So you know how this is, right? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, there's so much restlessness, oh, I'm just going to let go. That's not so much what's happening at this point in the retreat, actually, but even, even subtly. Um, there's a time when letting go is skillful and the result of wisdom, and there's a time when letting go is a kind of aversion to the experience that's happening. She goes on to say, many beginning yogis make this mistake. They let go before taking hold, and so their hearts never open. They enter into a sterile void and remain in prison. When you touch deeply, when you touch deeply, when you open to your experience fully, when you accept what's here with the totality of your being, you no longer need to let go. That happens, that occurs naturally. You no longer need to let go. That happens, that occurs naturally. That's the wisdom, the letting go that is the letting go of wisdom. 
So I'll just speak a little bit about um, classically the the two insights that support an understanding of equanimity, that support the lived experience of equanimity. In the the classical phrase, which we haven't used in the hall, but many of you know this classical phrase for equanimity practice, all beings are the owners of their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depend on their actions, not my wishes for them. And karma is really one of the four imponderables, which means it's not helpful to think a whole bunch about it, especially for the purposes of this retreat. The Buddha, the Buddha named four, four um, areas that are basically, he called them imponderables, that pondering them wasn't so helpful. And these are the range of a Buddha's mind, the, the, the range, the power of a concentrated mind, the beginning of the world and thinking about the law of karma. So we don't need to think too much about the law of karma, but we, we do know that things are happening lawfully, that when we plant seeds of goodness, seeds of goodness bear fruit that is wholesome, and that when we plant seeds that are unwholesome, there, it's not cause for happiness, that um, every action has a seed and it ripens according to the nature of the seed and also according to the causes and conditions that are at work. We all have such, uh, we are all so fortunate, we all have such wholesome karma to have the opportunity to practice this month together, to have come across these teachings and to be here And when we consider all of the causes and conditions, you know, every person here has their own story, their own whatever it was that brought you to the Dhamma and whatever amazing conditions are at work in your life that allowed you to be here. Somebody's taking care of things at home. Somehow you got the time off. We all have bodies and minds that allow us to really engage in this practice. So there's so much goodness sitting here in in this room. And if you are working with the classical phrase, I just wanted to name that um, it can be used, you know, sometimes in a, in a punitive way. When we don't understand, uh, we can hear, oh, we, we can think, maybe I got this diagnosis because I did something bad in the past or in a previous life. Or maybe I've endured this difficulty because I've done something wrong. And the Buddha was very clear that not everything is due to karma. Karma has its place, but not everything is due to karma. Believing that everything is due to karma takes a, a profoundly liberating and huge teaching and oversimplifies it and misunderstands it. In the Samutta Nikaya, there's, a, there's an exchange that happened when a man came to the Buddha and asked him, you know, that that he said that some people were having this view that whatever a person experiences, whether it's pleasant or painful or neutral, that it was all because of actions that have taken place in the past. And so he says to the Buddha, you know, what do you think about this? And the Buddha goes on to say that 
this belief um, is not true. He says they overshoot what one knows by oneself and they overshoot what is considered to be true in this world. And he goes on to say that some feelings arise here and now not because of karma, but because of phlegm and wind disorders and imbalances in the body. He goes on to say that some things originate here and now from a change of climate, from careless behavior, from assault. And so he he names a number of things that can arise here and now that are not comic fruits. And it's just important to bear this in mind, the complexities of what is at work when we consider that things are unfolding lawfully, to hold this framing that is maybe larger than what our minds even understand right now. The, the way that for me it's been most helpful to hold comma is just to know that what we do matters. To know that life is not some random chaotic, random chaotic unfolding, but that it's unfolding through patterns. So in a, in a very large sense, it challenges the view that I am the center of the universe. When we see the deep, deep interbeing, the deep interrelatedness at work, as Padma Sambhava said, one's view may be as vast as the sky, but one's regard for cause and effect should be as finely sifted as barley flour. So it's both this poignancy of how much it matters the way we show up for the moments of our lives, and at the same time, that we are not separate from a much greater unfolding. Joanna Macy talks about you know, that we are four and a half billion years old in terms of the origins of life. Four and a half billion years old. And 15 billion years old in terms of the Big Bang. She says every atom and every molecule and every cell of our body goes back that 15 billion years. That's a long time. 15 billion years. She says the life that's now beating in our hearts and breathing in our lungs didn't begin with our conception. It, life flows through us. She says for her, this is a wonderful doorway into equanimity, that life flows through us and we are part of the web of life, part of a much larger story. And you are all seeing this in your own ways through your experiences. You're, you're seeing, you know, sitting in on the interviews and hearing what's happening for each of you. Um, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful the way that you're knowing your own experience in your own being as an emergent process. You're knowing your life as part of the great currents of all, of all life. You're knowing your uh, deep interconnectedness with all that is, and you're seeing the results that happen with days and weeks and months of over and over again choosing mindfulness, choosing presence. It's very powerful. It brings wisdom. It brings understanding. It brings trust. It brings metta. 
And so we can let go and we can take great care in every moment as we allow life to let go for us. I'll close with a poem by Donald Babcock. This was uh, published in 1947 in The New Yorker called The Little Duck. And they don't use the word equanimity, but to me it's very much the experience and understanding of equanimity. Now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It's a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of a duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he's thinking things over. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he is part of it. He looks a bit like a Mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the Bodhi tree, but he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in it as if it were in an infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. He's made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. So let's just sit for a moment. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He has made himself a part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. Thank you for your attention tonight. May you let go of all the words and just ease yourself into it where life touches you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.